This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, I am here at my desk. I'm going to try to sneak in a quick Ask Isaac episode uh, before jumping on some work business today. So, uh, as always, you can pose questions, isaacmorehouse at gmail.com, Facebook slash Isaac Morehouse, Twitter, Isaac Morehouse, etc. cetera. Uh, also, I like to mention from time to time, discoverpraxis.com if you are between 18 and 25 and you want to go work for an amazing company right now, regardless of education status or whether you have any, and uh, get that work experience with an entrepreneur as well as one-on-one coaching, uh, tailored professional development curriculum, as well as um, everything from hard skills, soft skills, digital skills, business skills, liberal arts, you name it, discoverpraxis.com. Okay, so let me jump in. Let me grab some questions now that the infomercial is out of the way. Ah, what do we have today? So my colleague, Zach Slayback, he lobs me a softball to start off with. In all seriousness, what do you say to a person? Oh, he said in all seriousness because first he asked a uh, facetious question. In all seriousness, uh, these questions are all from Facebook, by the way. What do you say to a young person who wants to forge their own path but is butting heads with their parents? For example, a young person wants to go to work and eventually start their own company, but their parents are adamant about them going to college. Yeah, so this is one that we get all the time, and it's a huge challenge because I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm like, just tell your parents, screw you, it's my life. <laughs> you know, like, I, I usually say something like this. There's a couple different things going on. And in, in the very big picture, I like to say, at some point in your life, almost no matter how good your relationship is with your parents, whether it's awful, whether it's really amazing, there's going to come a point where you believe, you know, you feel in your gut, there's something that's good for you that will make you happy. And that's something that they don't think is good for you, or they don't particularly like. It may be a spouse that you choose to marry. It may be a place where you choose to move. It may be a type of job you choose to get, a type of music you listen to, Uh, You know, it may be any number of things, uh, religious beliefs you adopt, political positions. There's going to come a time where you are going to do something that you know is right for you and your parents are going to disagree. Whether that's, I want to take a gap year and not go to college, which is one that we run into all the time, uh, or delay college or drop out of college and do something different, or whether it's one of the other things that I mentioned, it's going to happen. Don't be afraid of doing that at some point. Like, you can do it politely. You can do it without having a huge, horrible, you know, uh, fight or without saying, I'm never speaking to you again. I mean, you know, there are some instances where I genuinely think the healthiest thing to do um, if you have, like, emotionally abusive relatives or something or manipulative is to just walk away. But that's pretty rare. Um, It's going to happen at some point, and usually after that initial decision is made, if you calmly do it in a way that you don't like burn any bridges unnecessarily, like, look, mom and dad, I know you care about me. Acknowledge. I know you have concerns. Acknowledge that their concerns have validity. I know that this is risky, right? But I know that I've got to do this. I've got to try this because I can't, I I just have this feeling this is the right thing for me. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Whatever that choice is, if it's one that they disagree with, 
after that's made, it usually gets a lot easier. Um, so it's going to feel totally insurmountable and horrible until that point. Now, that's just sort of a big picture general point. Um, what I like to, to suggest to a lot of, so let's say a typical like 18-year-old who's like, I'm so excited about Praxis. I want to do this program. My parents are freaked out because it means that I would be you know, waiting a year to go to school or maybe not going to school at all. Um, and they just, that that's not been, in their mind, they have a path to success for me. And that's all they've been ever been, like going to college, that's what they worked for, that's what they wanted me to do. That is their only symbol for me having a successful life. They're incapable of seeing me having a truly successful life in any other way. That's like, like when you're a kid and you only know of like five jobs. You say, I want to be a fireman. Not because you actually do, but because that represents in your limited knowledge what a good life looks like. It's exciting, adventurous, it's somewhat physical. Uh, you're a hero, you get to save people. But you might grow up and discover like a thousand other ways to get to that same core thing, right? So I think parents often like, they, it's this symbol for them, like that's what they were working for and they don't have any other conception. And so if you say you're doing anything different, in their mind, you're, you're heading, there's two paths, one towards success, one that's not towards success. And you're like heading the other way and it's scary. So acknowledging that up front and saying something like, mom and dad, I completely get it. I appreciate it. I know you want me to go to school. I know this is... This is your idea of success, but I want you to give me, give me a little trust. Give me a little leeway. Give me one year or six months or whatever it is. I have this burning desire. I've got to go try this thing. This is a great opportunity to do. I'm going to do it right now. And I can, I can go to college after that, at the end of that six months or at the end of that year, whatever it is, um, we can reassess where things are. And I want success too. I want a good life. I want, you know, stability and happiness and a family and all these things that you want for me. But I've got to find it on my own way. And this is something that I'm going to regret it. I'm going to regret if I don't try this. So give me one year. That's all I ask. And, and break it down in a smaller chunk like that. That's typically my advice would be to break it down into a smaller chunk and acknowledge up front that you understand and that there's validity to their concern. But you are asking or telling I'm going to take this one year. I'm going to take this, you know, smaller bite-sized chunk and then we can reassess. And they'll know that you're sort of in earnest and you're doing it with a, with a, you know, a, a right mind approaching it. And, you know, not to say that they won't still give you pressure or whatever else, but then you've done your part. Okay. Question number two, Matthew Holy, uh, future of social networks, how to ride the wave and use it rather than get swept up underneath it and how not to use it. Okay, it's a really broad question, and I, I don't pretend to be any kind of expert on social networks in terms of, like, the technology or from a, you know, investment standpoint, um, you know, all, all those types of things. But I think, I think you've, you're asking a couple things. One, like, where are social networks going, uh, which maybe I'll get to in a second, but how to ride the wave and use it rather than getting swept up underneath it. I, I wouldn't even call it a wave at this point. I think, like social networks are more or less a, um, a, a sort of stable, not stable. I mean, they're going to come and go and changes are going to happen all the time, but it's, it, they're here to stay. We'll put it that way. It's not like the Facebook wave or the Twitter wave, like whether or not Facebook and Twitter come and go in their current, you know, incarnations, those, this way of communicating with people, it's here, it's here to stay. Um, so how to use it and how not to use it. I think, 
I think a lot of people fall into two camps. They either underestimate the power of social networks um, and so just like really don't use them at all, or they use it only as a source of basically entertainment or short-term amusement, like just a, a place to go and like, you know, kill time, like look at cat videos or whatever. Um, and that's not a bad thing to go have some, some fun with it, whatever. But I think, I think understanding whether you like it or not, you have something that's never been possible before in the history of the world. You have control over your brand. Before social networks, it was like, you know, your brand was your reputation that spread by word of mouth only. So if you lived in a small town and you'd only ever had one or two jobs and you played on a baseball team and you had a family, your family, your friends that lived on the block, the people that played on the baseball team, the people you worked with, they were the only ones who knew you. And they were responsible for maintaining your brand. They had your reputation. So other people would hear about you through them. And they may or may not care that much. They may not have that accurate information. It may be years since they've talked with you. Like, they're not in touch with what you're really up to now, what you're really capable of, what you're really interested in, etc. Very, very hard. I mean, even for celebrities, it was like the gatekeepers of their brand were like, you know, whatever, the paparazzi, the reporters, um, the, the PR firms for the, you know, production company they were working with. Today, with Twitter, with Facebook, with LinkedIn, with, with this ability to create this entire digital footprint, you control your brand more than anything else. The vast majority of people I know, when you ask me, tell me about, you know, tell me about Matthew Hawley, the, the asker of this question, immediately I think about all the impressions I have from his digital footprint. So Matt, like you have an online brand, right? Whether you want to or not. And I know you're, you're active on social media, so you probably do want to. So this is a beautiful thing. It can be scary to some people, but I don't think if you just say, I'm scared of it, what if I do something stupid and make myself look bad, therefore I'm not going to use it. Not using it is not not using it, right? <laughs> like if you don't utilize it, it's not that you don't have a brand. You still do. You just have one that you're not in control of. You have a brand and an online personality and footprint, whether you want to or not. So take control of it. Don't be afraid of it. Um, so I think people who just sort of like, just sort of use it to consume things or haphazardly. I mean, I even tell people like, I don't understand, you know, trying to say, well, Facebook is only for personal stuff and Twitter is for, like to me, make it just assume that all of it is public. Because if somebody really wanted to, they could find just about anything you put on there. I mean, at least this is what I believe. I'm not a hacker. I don't like encrypt things or whatever. So use it under that assumption. Use it under the assumption that this all could be publicly viewable. So it doesn't mean you have to be perfectly squeaky clean and, squeaky clean and whitewashed. Um, like that's weird too. But just keep the quality of your discourse, of your post and everything up and maintain like LinkedIn. Anybody who's interested in any kind of career at all, whether you like it or not, LinkedIn is really valuable. Just have an up-to-date LinkedIn profile. Um, don't do stupid things that make you look petty and angry and bitter. Like the classic, if anyone believes this, you can unfriend me right now on Facebook. Like to me, that just looks sort of petty. And it just kind of brings the you down in my eyes in terms of like, why are you on here then? Why are you using this thing? Why are you accepting these friend requests? And then like self-righteously declaring that you're better than everyone whose friend request you accept. Like 
either don't get into the issue or state your opinions on it, but calling out your commenters and, and things like that, you know, it just, I, I think it just comes across making you look like you care too much uh, about those things uh, and like it's getting in your head too much and that you're, I don't know, maybe overly consumed in who said what on Facebook. So use it, have fun with it. Don't be afraid of it, but like also be above it. Also don't care that much. It, it actually reminds me of the way that the media, so I had this brief stint Okay, it was a couple of years. It wasn't all that brief, but I like to call it brief because I don't like to think about it too much. <laughs> I worked in the state legislature and all these state representatives, they, especially the ones who are like really conservative, they have it in their head that reporters are out to get them, that the reporters have all the power and they're just, they're just waiting. They just want to spin something. They want to ruin you at all times. And they, they fear them. And so they say really bland things that make no sense or they don't talk to reporters at all or they'll just snap and like say something angrily and then that the reporter will report that and then there'll be even more. Like it's crazy. But I remember one of the guys I worked for was like not afraid of the reporters at all. He loved them. He's like, yeah, I love attention. I love media. This is who cares? Like they're just people too. And he didn't see them as a threat in any way. He's like, look, they're just self-interested, rational people like everyone else. They need a story. The more interesting it is, the better it is for them. They don't want to work very hard for it because they'd rather, like, if you can get away with not working as hard and get the same story, why would you want to? Uh, they don't want to be hated. Um, they just, they, like, they're here all day hanging around with these lawmakers. They'd rather, like, have a good time than to have a boring time. So he would just sit there, tell them jokes. He would tell them things that was supposed to be, like, you know, only for the caucus room. I called him the leaker of the house. Um, <laughs> none of it was any huge major deal. Um, and he would just basically treat them like humans and like something he was not afraid of. And they never did hit pieces on him. Uh, you know, that like it was, he had a really good relationship with the media and he got a lot more mileage out of that. And I think social media is the same way. If you don't see it as your enemy, if you don't see it as like everyone out there just waiting to pounce on me on social media, uh, nor as your friend, they're not all out there waiting to read your stuff and promote it and love it. Everybody's just self-interested people. They just want to have a little fun, a little entertainment, whatever else. And like, don't see that as a threat. Just jump in, embrace it, use it, um, but not too much. Okay, one quick thing. I've gone on way too long on this uh, topic. One quick thing, though, that I found recently, and this may change. I'm not saying this for everyone. I have found that Facebook is still by far the most valuable platform for me in terms of distribution. If I share something on Facebook, it gets far more traction than any other platform thus far. Um, so I use it a lot for that. However, the quality of Facebook for consumption has gone down tremendously. So I almost never get on Facebook just to like read the newsfeed and see what's going on. Um, now part of that's cause I don't like manicure curate and control my friends list because I'm using it primarily for a way to, to share information. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't like curate what I see in my newsfeed when it comes to, if I actually want to consume some interesting information I have recently found in the last year or two, Twitter is hugely valuable for that. Like my Twitter feed is way more interesting to me, way more valuable as a place to go to consume things. Now, when I tweet things, they don't get nearly as much uh, action and engagement as on Facebook. So um, if I want more engagement, Facebook is much better. But for pure consumption, Twitter has basically replaced what um, what an RSS feed used to do, like Google Reader did for me back in the day. So because I don't read the news, I hate news sites. I hate like anything about the news. Um, but I like to hear things like, say, tech news or uh, what's going on, you know, with some sort of like outer space exploration or 
Um, just interesting thoughts from interesting people like Mark Andreessen, venture capitalist, like his tweet storms to me are more interesting than anything the New York Times could could post essentially. Um, so Twitter is very cool for that. I find that to be really valuable and not using Facebook as a consumption um, good is like does wonders for your time because Facebook for some reason just eats up way more time than I feel like it ought to if you if you go there to sort of be entertained. Um, Okay, Jake Oliver, do you think the ad-supported model will continue to work or will you need to find another way to monetize news? Okay, so will ad-supported news continue to work um, or will there need to be a new way to monetize it? And there's a sub-question. The advent of micropayments makes this interesting. Again, I do not pretend to be an expert in this area at all. Um, but I think that the general thing you can say about markets is that like we never know. Um, probably more things than we've ever, more combinations than we've ever imagined in new ways that we haven't yet imagined. Uh, I do think that ads will always be a valuable model the way that they're done. I mean, just look, just look at movies. I was watching Jurassic Park with my son last night, the original Jurassic Park. And I was commenting to my wife, like, isn't it dumb? Like kids in the 90s on movies, or, or I said kids on movies, they always wear like a, a hat. that's like a puffy hat of a solid color. Like the girl in the movie just has a purple hat. Like, nobody in real life ever wears a hat that has no logo on it that's just a colored hat. And Heather said, well, that was my wife. Well, that was that was in the 90s, but today they would never do that in a movie because they have all this product placement stuff. And I was like, yeah, she's right. Like, I don't know the last time I saw a movie, except for, like, a really low-budget one maybe, that had a kid wearing, like, a generic, you know, hat with no logo on it. Product placement is everywhere. And that's a form of advertising. So, I mean, whether it's, you know... Things that are linked to within the within the um, news piece. I mean, some of the podcasts I listen to, like Startup uh, or Tim Ferriss, they do a lot of advertising, but they do it in a way that's super interesting and transparent. It's either like in Tim Ferriss's case, hey, these are products that I actually use, and let me tell you about them. Um, and it doesn't come off as like overly cheesy, schmaltzy. And Startup, they're like, okay, here's somebody that wants to advertise with us. So we're in their offices, the company that wants this advertisement, and we're going to ask them about it. It's, it's like interesting. It's almost like reporting and advertising at the same time. So I think advertising is always going to be around, like not necessarily a pop-up in your face that says, you know, click this to find out why dentists in New Jersey hate this housewife or whatever. <laughs> Stupid stuff. I don't know if those will go away because they, they are annoying. But micropayments are fascinating too. And that is just with things like cryptocurrency, the ability at no cost, right? So the reason that you don't want to like sell an item for like 0.4 cents or something today, even though I guess you could technically charge that to a credit card, is that every time you use a credit card, there's a, there are transaction costs. But with things like Bitcoin, the costs are like near zero for the most part. And so you can do these tiny micro payments. And so you could you could easily set up sites where, you know, every time you click on an article, you pay like one one thousandth of a penny to read it. And so you could read a thousand articles for a penny um, or whatever it might be, you know, one one hundredth of a penny or something like that. And for you, it's nothing. You don't care. But, you know, if they're getting hundreds of thousands of views or millions of views, whatever, it's a big deal. So I think we will definitely see a lot of interesting thing with micropayments. Um, okay. Michael Hogan, what do you think of the idea of intrapreneurs? So this is the idea of like a, an entrepreneur um, within a firm. So someone who doesn't start their own business, but within a, within an existing firm, they are innovating and creating new things, whether it's new products, new projects, new processes. I got to think of another P word. Uh, new people. No, I don't think creating people is considered entrepreneurial. Um, so the entrepreneur, you know, the, the within the firm entrepreneur, 
I think it's a, I mean, I don't, the word is kind of cheesy to me. Like, I don't know something about it. I, I usually just say entrepreneur or entrepreneurial employee or entrepreneurial worker, but you can call it entrepreneur, whatever. Um, I think it's not only a great idea, I think it's going to be in increasing demand more and more and more. So machines can do most of the physical labor that humans used to do uh, better than we can. Software can increasingly do most of the sort of simple, like following tasks, um, you know, rote memorization type stuff, repetitive, basic calculations, figuring out basic problems. Software can do that better than we can. Right. And you have obviously programmable machines. So you've got the combination of software and hardware. Machines and software can do all of the rule following that humans can do, but better. So anything that involves just following rules, following a preset program, like machines are better at and software. So what does that leave for humans? Well, it leaves a lot. I mean, for one, this is a beautiful thing, like less and less monotonous work. Um, That's awesome frees us up, more leisure, more wealth, uh, more interesting things, problems to solve. Humans, what's uniquely human is creation. The act of creating something new. Not just replicating a known thing, following a, a known process, but creating something new, creatively solving a problem, innovation. That is so valuable and it's something that uh, for the foreseeable future, machines and software can't compete with. And more and more companies, whether it's a 20-person marketing firm or a 500-person you know, financial uh, place, more and more companies, again, not all, not, not necessarily every, every company in the world or anything, but more and more, they want more than an employee who just clocks in and does their thing and follows their tasks. They want someone who understands the vision of the company, takes ownership over it, and says, okay, we're not just laying bricks, we're building a cathedral, right? So how can I, what else can I do? How can I change the way things are done? Because I understand the bigger picture goal and I'm not just this person performing this small task. Um, That's huge, that's in demand. I mean, all of our business partners at Praxis, essentially that's what they're looking for. They don't just want an employee who can follow rules. They want someone who gets it, who like cares about why they're doing what they're doing and who can think about, okay, if I'm trying to produce result Z, just because I was told process Y is the way to get there doesn't mean it is. If I can think of a better process X and create it and implement it, right? That's better for everybody. That is so valuable. And so I think entrepreneurialism as a mindset or entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism, I don't even know if that's a word, but entrepreneurship as a mindset is ridiculously valuable, whether or not you ever start your own company. To be someone who you can throw a problem at that person and you know they're going to figure out a way to solve it, whether one exists yet or not. That's huge. And I think the only way to cultivate that mindset is to be out there in the world doing things, experimenting with things. You can't study entrepreneurship and learn how to be, to think entrepreneurially from study and from books. Okay, next question. I'm going to speed up a little bit for the last few. Jim Cunningham, why don't you return my calls? Sorry, Jim, I don't like to talk on the phone. Um, <laughs> Tom Scholl, that was mostly it. I mean, I don't like to talk on the phone, that's true, but Jim Cunningham is a friend of mine and he's just responding to my request for questions with smart aleckiness. I would expect no less. Thomas Scholl, why should some people go to college? Okay, so, um, you know, running practice, talking about alternatives to college, talking about going out there and creating something different, doing something different than the, than the predetermined, you know, college path. I get a lot of people who are like, so basically you're, you're just anti-college. 
and college is just bad. I think that that's like, and I'm not accusing Tom of, of making this assumption, but I think that's like the most, like that question reveals the problem, the way that this issue is framed. I mean, it's it's absolutely absurd and ridiculous to assume that someone should be pro or anti-college in the abstract, in general, for society as a whole. I use this analogy all the time. It's like saying, are you pro or anti-pickup truck? You know, should all young people buy a pickup truck? Yes or no? Good investment? Yes or no? What if I show you the data? Their average earnings are higher or whatever. Like that's the most absurd thing ever, right? Individuals are not aggregates, right? So the statistics don't matter. There is no pro or con college as a category as a whole. It's all about the individual person. What I care about is people discovering what makes them come alive and doing it. And the assumption that there's like one or two paths to making that happen um, is just crazy. There's as many paths as there are people. And that diversity, that flowering of different options is what I'm interested in. So why should some people go to college? I think there are kind of three broad categories. If you ask the question, do I need a degree? There's a yes, a maybe, and a no category. Okay, the yes category, if you know for a fact not just like my mom wants me to, or I think it would be fun, but if you know for a fact that you want to be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, professor, or bureaucrat, go get a degree. You'll need one. Legally required. It's Those are cartelized industries that force you to have a degree as a barrier to entry to keep out the riffraff and to keep their prices artificially high. If you want to play in that game, you've got to get a degree there. I know a lot of people who do those things and do them well, and they don't like it that they have to have a degree, but they, they have to just to, to get a job. No, it doesn't mean if you're interested in law, medicine, finance, or uh, like ideas, um, those categories that you have to necessarily become a doctor, lawyer, accountant, or professor. Um, I know people who are philosophers without a degree. I know people who uh, run finance companies or do accounting without an accounting degree. I know people who are fascinated by law and have started, uh, you know, built apps that help people do legal processes faster. Um, I don't know any of those people personally, but I know of them, right? I know people who are interested in medicine and helping people, um, you know, have better health outcomes who don't become doctors and find other ways. So if you're interested in the broad categories, don't assume that doctor, lawyer, accountant, professor um, really are the only ways to do those things. But if you know you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, an accountant, a professor, or God help us, a bureaucrat, you have to go get a degree. If you know for a fact you want to be an entrepreneur, an artist, or like a tech person, an IT wizard, don't go get a degree. It's, there's, um, there's like absolutely nothing that it can do for you that other things can't do better. If you don't know what you want to do, or none of these really define you or describe you, or you're just unsure, or you're in a category that I did not mention, then you're in the maybe category. The maybe category. Should you get a degree? Maybe, right? And maybe is a very personal calculation. I mean, look at the costs and benefits, honestly. Consider for four years and maybe 10,000, maybe 50,000, maybe 150,000 of your time, uh, of your money and four years of your time, what is the most valuable set of activities you can imagine doing with four years and say 50 grand? Once you ask it that way, it becomes like, whoa, the world opens up. Maybe you could spend a year traveling the world on you know, $10,000 um, and do a bunch of Airbnb and do different stuff, get different experiences. Maybe you could spend a year uh, on Code Academy 
learning a couple programming languages really, really well and building a website and doing work for free for some web development companies. You can build a GitHub, you know, portfolio. Uh, maybe you can spend another year reading like three books every week for a year and you'll have read like 150 books and on, you know, a handful of topics and truly become like an expert on them. Um, I mean, you start to think about maybe you can go work for a really fascinating company for a year or two. Um, even if they can't pay you, you're still going to come out financially ahead compared to if you were spending, you know, it depends on how much you're spending on a degree. You think about it that way and it becomes really hard for a degree for a college experience to measure up in terms of what you could get skill, experience, network, knowledge, and confidence. Those are the five things I think you need to succeed in the world. What are the best ways to get those tailored to you? And, and, and knowledge includes self-knowledge, what you love, and more importantly, what you don't love. And that's a pretty high bar for the typical college experience to, to, to climb. And the things that people love the most about the college experience, the things that they hate are the things that are required to get a degree, like class, right? The things that they love are like the social experience, the drinking, um, maybe a few of the classes where you have in-depth discussions or you stay up till two in the morning talking about you know epistemology or something like that. That's pretty rare on campuses, but it happens. The interesting thing is all the things people like you can have for free. You can move to a college town, not enroll in any classes, just attend the ones that are interesting to you, go to coffee with the professors that you find fascinating, stay up till two in the morning talking about ideas with anyone you can find, uh, you know, live on campus, play intramural sports, whatever. Like you can do all this stuff really without enrolling, without paying. So it's that, it's that degree, that signal that people think they need. I need this thing. It's a ticket to a job. Sometimes it is like the ones that legally require it. Um, other times it might or might not help you. Uh, the bigger, more bureaucratic, more uh, human resource <laughs> employees a company has, the more likely they are to require a degree and not look at you without one. Um, but increasingly that's changing. Your product, your body of work, your portfolio of experience is so much more valuable than that piece of paper. So much more valuable. Um, whether or not you have the piece of paper, everybody else does too. You need a lot more than that. So um, who is college for? short answer is those who uh, legally need it or those who have a cost-benefit analysis where they love the things they're going to get from college more than any other possible way they could spend the four years and whatever amount of money it is. Um, love it and find it more valuable. Okay. Caleb Brown, do you have a dollar? Yes, I do, Caleb. Michael Hogan, do you think macro and microeconomics require different mechanisms? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I think what most people call macroeconomics is just like largely just voodoo silliness. I think any macroeconomics that is not solidly built on and, and does not contradict microeconomics um, is just foo-foo. Um, microeconomics, like what happens at the level of the individual, the family, the small you know society, it's no different when you extrapolate it and make it, put it on a, a massive scale, right? I mean, so some, some common examples, I mean, like we know, for example, that as an individual, you can't consume something unless you first produced it and saved it. And that consuming, you know, let's say you're, you're in a hunter-gatherer society, you gather a whole bunch of nuts and then you save them and then you can consume them because you first gathered them, right? And everyone knows this, but yet when we go to the macro level, people start believing these crazy notions. Like we have to encourage, people aren't, aren't eating their nuts. And if they don't eat their nuts, the economy won't grow. We've got to encourage people to do more consumption because consumption drives growth. 
like you get these absurd ideas, like as if these economic relationships just reverse all of a sudden when we're dealing with large numbers of people. Um, it's really, it's really, really bizarre in some ways or things like trade deficits. Like if I have a neighbor and I am constantly giving them dollars and they are constantly giving me uh, physical things that they produce, like I've got a bunch of dollars, they've got a bunch of, I don't know, candles, and I'm buying candles from them. Would anyone say I am harming myself because I am buying more items from them than I'm selling to them? I'm not giving them any physical items. I'm only giving them dollars. Or like, you know, um, Apple. I've never given Apple, the company, any physical products ever. They've never bought a product from me. I constantly buy products from them. Nobody thinks this is a problem. That's a beneficial relationship. Yet when you draw bizarre imaginary lines around groups of people and call them nations, and now you look at the aggregate activity of this group of people inside this you know, national border, and you say, oh, people from the US are buying a bunch of goods from, that people from China are producing, uh, and people from China aren't buying as many goods from the US, that's a trade deficit. We're importing more than we're exporting. That's bad. That's bad for us. It's hurting us. It's absurd. There's nothing that changes when you get to the macro scale from when from me and Apple. Like I have a trade deficit with Apple. Who cares? I'm happy. They're happy. There's there's nothing about that um, that changes. So yeah, I think there's a there's a great book that connects these two better than ever, any that I know of yet. It's by Steve Horwitz, and it's called um, Micro Foundations and Macroeconomics. Um, I think it's a great it's a great bridge between the two because all of my favorite economics are typically just microeconomics, like the really core stuff, you know, um, like Menger or Mises is human action or on a more basic level, Gene Callahan's economics for real people. They kind of lay out economics and all these different relationships where, you know, what's supply and demand and diminishing marginal utility and all this stuff. And um, macro can seem like a whole bunch of disconnected voodoo that like, it, it can seem like it has no relationship to micro. And if it's done poorly, uh, maybe it doesn't. But if it's done well, it does. And in Horwitz's book, um, Micro Foundations of Macroeconomics, uh, does a really good job, I think, connecting those two. Okay, finally, Caleb Brown, can I borrow a dollar? See, I see what you did there, Caleb. Do you have a dollar? Yes. Can I borrow a dollar? No. Well, I mean, I guess, but the transaction cost of sending it to you doesn't seem worth it. So next time I see you, Caleb, uh, I never carry cash on me, but I don't know. Maybe I can like buy you a drink and then you can just owe me a dollar. All right. I had a great time. Thank you again for the questions. I went on a little bit longer than usual this time. I guess I was a little chatty, but uh, hopefully um, this was fun. And feel free to send me any other questions anytime. <laughs>